an entire continent under the Chinese regime's sway. Beijing has been pouring billions of dollars into the infrastructure of Africa, but what started out as a seemingly generous move has dark strings attached. Now that influence is rippling out globally. In this special report, we look at China's growing influence in Africa, how it got to this point, and the impact it's having on the rest of the world. Welcome to China In Focus, I'm Tiffany Meyer. Tendrils of Chinese influence have been spreading in every corner of the world. But the regime seems to have sunk its hooks in deeper in one region than in others. That is the entire continent of Africa. You're going to wind up with China controlling seaports in Africa. They're going to control airports. I mean, they already have a military base in Djibouti. Um, maybe they'll be building other bases. China is the biggest lender to Africa, having loaned over $148 billion to countries there since 2018. But with those loans come risks. These are some of the most impoverished countries in the world that also have some of the largest debt. And so you have a, you know, a poor country and then they're in debt. They're in debt to China. They owe them a lot of money. Plus, we're all coming out of this two years of COVID economy. So these countries are really in danger of default. A number of them are actually in danger of default. Several of them are threatened with default. That's Antonio Graceffo, China economic analyst. Now, what happens if these countries can't pay back the Chinese loans to the point that they default? In cases where foreign analysts have looked at the contracts, they said, well, this contract clearly says that if country X in Africa defaults on their loans, China gets to take their seaport or their airport or their, you know, uh, cobalt mines or something. And China apparently uh, always says, well, no, you see, you misunderstand the contract. Everyone misunderstands the contract, everyone except China. How did these countries get to this point? First, let's look at why there's all this misunderstanding surrounding the contracts. China keeps most of the contracts um, relatively secret. Um, it's one of the big criticisms of China and the lending on the Belt and Road Initiative is that it's all secret and uh, it's opaque and nobody knows what the terms of the contracts are. Secondly, the countries signing onto these deals are often already indebted to the point that World Banks and other countries would never lend to them because these other organizations have a conscience and they'll actually say, listen, uh, you know, country X or Y, uh, you're already heavily in debt. And if we loan you more money, we're going to be putting debt on top of debt and it's going to overburden you and it could crash out your economy and do all kinds of horrible things. Your currency can collapse and, and this and that. And um, so they won't lend to them, like basically out of conscience. But one such country seemingly unburdened by these scruples is the Chinese regime. China shows up, they go, oh, you know, the West rejected you. I'm your friend. I'll loan you this money. But is the Chinese regime really here as a magnanimous benefactor? All these China loans are basically China's loaning them money to build infrastructure, which will allegedly generate revenue. And that revenue will be enough to pay back the loans. Well, if you're building a highway or you're building an airport or you're building a seaport, until it's completed, it doesn't generate any revenue. And under the promise of future profits, the payments begin immediately. 
but it may take years to build this airport or whatever it is. So it doesn't generate any revenue. So now the country is on the hook and they have to make these payments. But that's not all. And the other just, just, just predatory, horrible thing about these China loans is that they will loan the money to country X to build an airport. They will then send construction crews and engineers from China and immediately take the money back as a payment for this construction. But now the country owes the money, the principal, to China, right? They, they paid it out to a Chinese company. Chinese, China's effectively already recouped all the money. And now this country has to begin making interest payments, and they don't have cash to make interest payments. And we know this because they borrowed money from China. And why did they borrow money from China? Because they don't have money. So now suddenly they're faced with these interest payments that they can't pay. What options are these countries left with? When these countries are in danger of default, they will then go to the UN, they'll go to the ADB, they'll go to, uh, you know, the traditional lenders, and they'll say, listen, we're, you know, we're in danger of default, you got to help us, you have to loan us money. So now, what you're basically going to wind up with is Western institutions giving money to these countries so that they could immediately turn around and give the money to the CCP. The Chinese regime has found a way to rake in money from multiple fronts. But it's not just the economic side. For example, they need raw materials. So they go to countries that are rich in raw materials, nickel, cobalt, things like that in Africa. And the again, the problem with the countries that are rich in raw materials is that they, they are generally of lower development, you know, the, the countries at a lower developmental level, they don't have their own technology for extracting the minerals from the earth. So they make a deal with China. But what does this deal entail? China says, well, we're going to buy your minerals. This is great. We're going to pay you billions of dollars for your minerals, and the country's very happy. They're going to make billions of dollars. But of course, the country's not really capable of extracting it themselves. And where do these countries get the equipment needed to extract the minerals? China. China then sends a state-owned or state-controlled or state-affiliated uh, um, mining company. And they get the contract from the local government, and they'll say to the local government, "Listen, we'll loan you this money. We're gonna we're gonna buy your your cobalt, but you're gonna agree to have our company come there and and, and extract it. And actually, if you don't agree, there, there, there's no way to get it out of the ground, so you have to agree." And this isn't an isolated example. Some of these countries in Africa, uh, 70 to 80 percent of the mining sector is controlled by China. So they've already loaned the money, then they have their own company there running the mines, and then allegedly they're paying the country for the ore that's being taken out of the ground. But raw materials themselves don't usually generate a profit. Let's look at steel. Yes, steel's a raw material, but it is not an earth mineral. The actual earth mineral is iron. Right. So steel is already refined. Steel has already been to a developed country like Canada or Germany or the United States where it's been refined into steel. Right. What comes out of the earth is iron ore. The iron ore necessary to build one Toyota automobile cost less than two hundred dollars. Going back to these African countries. Basically, what you wind up with is the country just becomes a machine, a Chinese machine of extracting minerals out of the earth. The minerals go to China, the money goes to China, and the country somehow is still in debt to China and can never get out of it. Part of the imbalance stems from the nature of processing raw materials. Let's say that a benevolent country, you know, appeared on the earth and they said, we're going to 
just give you the money to make your own mind and you could extract the cobalt and we'll buy it at the fair market value and you don't owe us any money. You're still talking about taking $200 worth of iron out of the earth and making an $18,000 automobile. Resource-rich countries are stuck in a situation that's hard to scramble out of. To make more money, they'd have to be able to you know, process and make the steel. And then ultimately, you don't want to just process and make the steel. You want to be able to make the, the finished products because those are so much more valuable. But it's not just raw materials that hold value for Beijing. The Chinese regime has found other ways to seep into countries across Africa. Let's turn to the skies for a look at telecommunications. John Pelson is the author of Wireless Wars, China's Dangerous Domination of 5G and How We're Fighting Back. He notes the reach of China's influence in Africa through Huawei. Huawei, in concert with a video camera company, had built a system for the government to, uh, here's what it allowed them to do. It would use face recognition and artificial intelligence to look at the faces of people in public areas and determine if someone of the wrong race had entered a neighborhood where they did not belong. And in the US, you would call that an abomination. In most of the free world, you would. In China, Huawei would call that a feature. But while the regime publicly denied it, internal documents tell a different story. And it's posted on the web, it's since taken down, but they will put up systems that allow the police to say, this is a Uyghur, He's in an area that he shouldn't be. Send the police and break him up. Or here's a protest that's starting to shape up in Hong Kong. We recognize the faces of these people who have left their phones behind so they can't be tracked, but we can use facial recognition now. Or if they, even if they're not posting on social media, carrying a phone alone is a beacon telling everyone running the network who you are and where you are. And even if a person turns off their phone, Huawei could track the person through facial recognition. Pelson says Beijing's reasons for doing this go beyond business. China was really waging what I call this was a non-kinetic war. They were not involved in business transactions, but everyone, I shouldn't just say the West, free countries because Japan, Korea, Taiwan were all victim to this. Pelson notes how that would play out. What China was doing was using these supposedly private telecom equipment vendors as a tool uh, to displace the incumbents, Ericsson, Nokia, Lucent, AT&T, uh, Motorola, and replace them with their own company. And the way they did that was they would show up and they would bid just absurdly low prices. But how was Huawei able to offer such low prices? The Chinese government was subsidizing Huawei. Those subsidies come at the tune of billions. The Wall Street Journal estimated it was a $75 billion dollar subsidy over about 10 or 15 years that they could undercut everybody and either win the business, which they did across Africa and, and Latin America, or if they didn't win the business, like in the US where there was a lot of pressure not to sign on with Huawei, they would come in so low that that Sprint or whoever would say, okay, Huawei, you didn't win the business, but they'd turn around to Ericsson and say, your $4 billion bid is way high. Huawei bid $2.5 billion, we'll do it, but you got to take another $500 million off. They destroyed all the profit margins and all the business for the other carriers, for the other equipment vendors. From loans to raw materials to controlling telecoms, there's still another area China's influence has grabbed hold of, diplomacy. 
The African bloc makes up over 50 votes in the U.N. Every one of these countries that gets on the hook with China, uh, you'll find them voting with China. When you look at things like, here's a litmus test, check which countries voted to condemn Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. And you'll find that most of the Belt and Road countries or countries that were heavily indebted to China uh, yeah, abstained from the vote. Um, you look at countries that vote for um, declaring a human rights crisis in Xinjiang or calling Xinjiang a genocide. And again, you're going to find that countries that are heavily indebted to China do not vote against China. And that has long-term implications. Africa has always been kind of the forgotten continent in terms of U.S. foreign policy. You know, I think that because the Asia-Pacific is so important to countering China, that we have focused on that, certainly for the, the uh, Trump administration, and now it seems the Biden administration is going to continue that, which I'm happy about. But, you know, Africa has always been just kind of this, this, you know, question mark, just kind of, we just have not been active there, and I really wish that we would be. Until the U.S. takes a more active role in Africa. Little by little, these African countries are just going to get sucked into this, uh, this China orbit. And meanwhile, these debts, China claims that they, they are not taking ports and they're not taking airports in places like Kenya. Uh, if you look at the contracts, that, that is what is happening. It's just this Chinese juggernaut that, that one of the advantages of the dictatorial system that China has. And out of that, there's a top-down effect. But because China is a dictatorial, effectively one-party system, because it is a still under um, state management, every single piece works together. Everything, every bank, every I know ore company, every mineral company, every factory, everything. It's like it's like Xi Jinping is looking at a chessboard, and he can just move the pieces however he wants. That would be the most advantageous way for China. And in a way, I have this image of China as like a boa constrictor, you know, slowly just, just tightening its grip on the earth. With things having gotten to this stage, what can the U.S. and its allies do? The U.S. needs to offer reasonable alternatives to Africa, particularly Africa, right? Also Latin America, also Asia. But we need to offer reasonable alternatives to China because if you are the president of a country in Africa, and, you know, 10% of the roads in your country are sealed or 60% of the schools don't have electricity or 80% of your population doesn't have access to clean drinking water. And then China comes along and says, we will give you billions of dollars. Graceffo says countries need options to choose from. So if you're a random country in Africa and, and, and you need to build roads and schools and, 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 and have water for your people and electricity, like, what are you supposed to do, right? So the only other option is that the U.S., the EU, are going to have to step up and they're going to have to offer viable options to these people. As for how they could make that happen. I would love it if we would step up our lending um, perhaps making some type of consortium uh, between the United States and the EU. But it doesn't stop there. I'd like to see um, Korea, I would like to see some of the rich ranching, even Malaysia. I'd like to see them playing more of a role and let's put together some type of a reasonable aid package, development package, where we can help countries in Africa to develop their democracy, to develop their economy. If that doesn't happen, China is the vertically and horizontally integrated country that is run like a 
corporation with an army, you know, and they're just rolling across Africa, rolling across Latin America, and we absolutely have to take a proactive stance there. That's because, as experts point out, in this day and age, what China does in other countries or other continents ripples out to all corners of the world. It might not seem relevant today, but it could very well be relevant tomorrow. And if steps aren't taken today, it will be that much harder further down the road. Coming up, a look at today's news. Is Shanghai's two-month COVID-19 lockdown finally over? Not for everyone, as more than two million people are still confined to their homes. The other 22 million are facing other frustrations, like waiting in long lines for virus testing, because without those results, they'll be blocked from entering public spaces. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. With COVID-19 lockdowns largely over in Shanghai, millions of residents are finally allowed to leave their homes. But they find themselves facing a new frustration. Let's look into it. A two-month COVID-19 lockdown is largely over in Shanghai. But relief is quickly giving way to frustration, with residents now facing hours waiting in line for virus tests and the negative results they must show to be allowed to enter public spaces. Citizens are required to have proof they've taken a COVID test within the last 72 hours in order to enter areas like malls and offices, or even to use subways and buses. Authorities have built 15,000 testing sites and trained thousands of workers to swab throats. But long lines appeared on Wednesday and Thursday amid early summer heat of up to almost 88 degrees. But there are long queues at most of the spots. Someone complained that they had to wait for hours yesterday. This video obtained by Reuters shows residents of a large compound arguing with officials as they remained under a strict lockdown on Thursday, despite being told that two abnormal test results amongst them this week were false positives and not positive cases of the virus. Other Chinese cities, including Beijing and Shenzhen, have imposed similar testing requirements under a national zero-COVID policy that aims to cut off every infection chain. Deep discontent has been sparked by Shanghai's stringent curbs, but China has vowed to stick with its approach. It says the zero-COVID policy is needed to save lives and prevent its health care system from being swamped, even as much of the world tries to return to normal. That means COVID testing is becoming a feature of daily life. China's goal is to have testing sites within a 15-minute walk for everyone in large cities. Over in Hong Kong, city police warned the public not to hold any unauthorized assemblies on Thursday. The message comes two days before the 33rd anniversary of a bloody crackdown in 1989, set inside Beijing's famed Tiananmen Square. Let's take a look. A law enforcement official urged Hong Kong's public not to gather in groups with a common purpose. I would stress that if you are staying together with a group of people uh, at the same place at the same time, and with a, with a common purpose to express uh, certain views, it is already uh, meeting the definition of a uh, topic of a meeting. And depending on the number of persons uh, at the scene, that may contravene offenses, including an authorized assembly or, or 
due to the act, they even contribute other more serious offenses. For many years, activists in Hong Kong have organized street parades and candlelight vigils at a park in the center of Hong Kong. But authorities started cracking down on the gatherings in 2020. The events mark the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. On June 4, 1989, the Chinese regime's military opened fire on unarmed college students who had gathered to ask for democracy and uncensored education. The British Broadcasting Corporation estimates the death toll at around 10,000. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is addressing the Chinese communist regime's threat. He's calling it the most serious long-term challenge facing the United States and the rules-based world order. We can't uh, rely on Beijing to change its own trajectory. Uh, what we can do and what we're working to do is to shape the strategic environment around Beijing to advance our positive vision for an open, inclusive international system. I believe China wants a world order, which is good because order is, is usually better than the alternative. Uh, but the profound difference is this. The order that we've sought to build, it very imperfectly, but that we sought to build is profoundly liberal in nature. The order that China seeks is illiberal. We disagree. And it's as, and it's as basic and fundamental as that. Lincoln says he hopes Beijing sees how the world has come together to support Ukraine and put extraordinary pressure on Russia. Blinken made the comments while speaking to the Council on Foreign Relations. He noted it's important for the Chinese regime to take the right lessons from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He also said the Biden administration wants to lead the international bloc that's opposed to Russia's invasion of Ukraine into a broader coalition. That's to counter what it sees as a more serious long-term threat to the global order from Beijing. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Every once in a while, something comes along so masterful it leaves you in awe. So inspiring, it changes your life. So beautiful, you wish it would never end. When that happens, it's something not to be missed. Shen Yun, an all-new production every year. performance was enchanting. I feel better about the world. I feel uplifted. It touches you. It really does. The expertise of the dancers was really, really strong. To know that it was live music was really fantastic. We didn't want to miss this. Make sure you see it. Have to come. Life-changing.